welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Good evening, everyone. My name is Rich P. I'm, uh, I'm going to set my timer here because I want to pay attention to the time. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. My sobriety date is September 28th, 2010. But the sponsor of mine who you just met, he's taught me to lead with my weaknesses. And I, this is a program of honesty. So I'm also a liar and I'm a thief I'm a cheater, and I'm a manipulator, and I'm, a, and I'm an abuser without God. And that's what you're going to hear tonight. You're going to hear the story of how God just moved in my life when I gave him permission. I, I had never given him permission. So I belong to the Southeast Regional Assembly, and um, we had never done a regional event before. We've always had individual marathons in SA. And um, for the past two years, uh, we decided, like, we wanted to do something for the region. And this idea of a spiritual retreat kept coming up, and it got traction in the region. And so when we were planning it, the planning committee, which I was on, we said, um, let's dive deep into telling our, like, we all are, we know our lust story, but we wanted to tell our story from a spiritual perspective, we got really excited about that. Like, what would that look like? How, how might that be different than, you know, a sexologue? And I mean, you can do your story very respectfully, but we were really excited about this. So we just did this, this retreat, this spiritual retreat back in May. So it's fresh. So I had a chance to learn how to do this. And it all comes from the white book and the 12 and 12 in the big book. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my spiritual story, um, from what I learned. Um, so. I don't mind spoiler alerts. I don't know how everyone else feels, but the spoiler alert is this. You know, in our meetings, in essay meetings, we always read from the, well, typically most folks read from the problem and the solution. And I love this because it's the same reading wherever you go, same meeting, and we hear it all the time, but sometimes it gets lost because it's so, you know, sometimes repetitive or I'm, I'm not centered, I'm thinking about other things. But there's an incredible line in that solution, and it says, Encouraged to continue, we turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self toward God and others. I like to joke and say, that's my story, thanks for letting me share, and I could sit down. (laughs) Because that's my story. I mean, it's very simple in a way. Like when we say this program is simple, that's what I think about. I think about sex and self, lived an entire life of sex and self, 40 years, sex and self. And now I get this, this shot at a second life of God and others. And that's my story. So, you know, I'm just another bozo on the bus. I'm a garden variety sexaholic. Mance gave a, a very generous introduction to me. But I see my story as nothing, nothing unusual, nothing special. It's just my story. It's just rich and just a story. And that's what you're going to get tonight. 
All right, so um, I do want to do a reading. This is, I just love how God moves. So um, at the General Delegate Assembly, um, we started the GDA off on Thursday with a reading. And this is the same reading that we did on the spiritual retreat. And the person who chose to do that, I believe it was a random reading at the beginning of the GDA, chose this reading, and I had it marked to start with tonight. So I'm going to read this from the White Book. It's under the Spiritual Basis of Addiction. It's on page 45 into 46, and here's what it says. In recovery, we came to see aspects of our sexaholism lying behind the physical and psychological that paralleled similar aspects discovered by recovering alcoholics. These have to do with the personality, dealing with the will and the attitudinal forces shaping the person and character. We refer to this as a spiritual dimension. It is here where we discover the most powerful forces propelling us into our addiction. Thus, we will use the word spiritual in referring to that aspect of ourselves underlying and determining all our attitudes, choices, thoughts, and behavior, the very core of personality, the very heart of the person. If we can see how the addictive process involves this most fundamental aspect of our being, we will be able to understand why recovery, whatever we make of it, must be a spiritual process. So, I mean, we read that for our spiritual retreat, and I was thinking about that for our story, and I'm like, this just this is so perfect. It just aligns with my experience. Like, this is my story. It's just been, it's a God story, and that's that's kind of all I really got to tell you about tonight. Thank you. <laughs> That's true. So, um, you know, in the White Book, Roy kind of outlines almost eight steps of a spiritual process. And I'm not going to go into too, too much detail on all that. Um, I'm going to try to share my, pers- my story. And um, I don't want this to, to be the, the whole point of the talk. I have so much more to share. Like my story, this is the past. And this is just, but this is sort of, you know, some sense making of the past from a spiritual perspective. Um, so... The first concept is this attitude change. My story begins about the age of five, and I had pretty intense and extensive sexual abuse by two individuals, by an uncle for about five years, five to ten, and then by a member of the clergy from my family's faith tradition from about eight to twelve-ish. And that's a long time. That's about ten years total. Factually, we know that you know introducing sex to children early is damaging and, and devastating, and it has lifelong consequences. Yes, that is true. Yes, that is my story. But the white book opens up something different to me. It says, it sets a course for our addiction, this attitude change. It's my attitude towards the conditions of what happened to me. And I really resonate with that because what I learned in this process was that it really set me against myself because... Nothing I did changed it. It set me against my parents. It sent me against my uncle and this clergy because it didn't stop. And it also sent me, and this is the key, against God. And it taught me a few things. It told me that God is not safe. God violates my will. Like God distorts. Like God takes. And the key is God is against me. God is not for me. Um, I have a different... Uh, awareness now that, you know, God, and Roy says this, I love this line, page 119, God is truly for the sexaholic. And that line really has changed my life because I didn't learn that. I didn't know that. I didn't experience that. So, um, so that, you know, takes me to about age 12. And then there's this notion of a decision to persist in wrong. So that is like, yeah, God doesn't come through for me. My parents don't come through for me. No one comes through for me. My perception, my my attitude. Um, 
So I'm going to persist in wrong. I'm going to not be obedient. I'm going to actually be rebellious. I'm not going to. I'm not going to take direction, and I'm going to. I'm going to be. I'm going to fight, and I'm going to be. Um, I'm going to be rebellious. And um, that sort of manifests itself in, in sort of this way of like, there's a spiritual force that sort of um, working within me to sort of take in and ingest and consume people. So no surprise, or you know, not for everyone, but for me. So I get intro- you know, I was introduced to lust early, but my lust is same-sex lust. And uh, another real powerful message I wanted to say tonight is that this is a game changer for me in recovery, but lust is lust is lust is lust. And that, that was a huge game changer. Like I had so much shame around same sex lust and what I thought it said about me and what I thought it identified me as and what I thought it made me. And when I learned that opposite sex lust and same sex lust and lust for any other, you know, iteration out there, it's all the same. And it, it's a great leveler. It levels the playing field because it doesn't own me. It doesn't, it doesn't have a grip on me anymore. I'm fast forwarding a little bit there. So I'm in my teens, and there's this notion of guilt and punishment that Roy talks about, and somewhat of self-obsession. I had this story that ran through my head was, I did something so terrible and something so wrong that I could never come back from it. Like, that was my belief. I mean, that, that was my story. I just thought I could never come back to it. And I thought I could never get to God. Like, I always felt the chasm was too wide, it was too far, high, deep, however you want to say it. I could not cross over to God. Like, he wasn't for me early. I couldn't get to him. And I just thought, like, I, b- I believed that there was something. But um, I just I just wasn't part of his world. I wasn't part of his universe. So you're kind of left to your own devices. That's sort of how I understood that. So then, um, so, this, so this is when I started to get clarity on, in looking back, this notion of the spirit of lust. I love that language that Roy uses. It feels like it's, it, it captures my experience, but I did feel it was a spirit of lust. And, you know, Roy also talks so clearly on page 42 of the White Book, and he says, in my experience, lust is not physical. It is not even strong sexual desire. It seems to be a spiritual force that distorts my instincts and will never let loose in one area seems to want to infect other areas as well. And this is a, another game changer. And being non-sexual, lust crosses all lines, including gender. When energized by lust, my sexual fantasies are acting out, go in any direction, shaped by whatever I experience. Thus, the more I indulge in sexual lust, the less truly sexual I become. And um, you know, a, a phase of self-obsession sets in. So, you know, I'm in my early 20s at this point. I think, you know, the, the marriage, the marriage is going to sort of relieve me of this burden. It's going to fix things for me. And I do get married. And, um, but I was deep into lust at this point. I was deep into self-obsession. And like, my marriage couldn't compete with that. Like, it, it just couldn't. I felt like, you know, my marriage started in an sort of in, in, in an invalid state and it continued in an invalid state. But, and it couldn't compete with the notion that only I matter. When only I matter, nothing else matters. And lust tells me that. In many ways, I felt like I became a slave to lust and this juggernaut of self-will that we see referenced in some of our literature in the big book literature. So this is where it gets scary, though, for me. So there's this notion of separation in terms of the spiritual journey. And this is where we, um, we, we, put, we push the light, the truth about ourselves and others, further and further away until finally none of it gets through. And the shield of, gets, none of it gets through the shield of self-will and darkness descends. And that's my experience. Like, I went deep 
deep into dark lust. Like I, I don't need to be descriptive, but um, just a dark cultural world of lust, of same-sex lust. And um, I never knew it existed, but it does exist, and it took me out. So this is a scary point. I became numb, and I became, I had no remorse. I had guilt at one point and a little bit of shame. But at one point, like, the only way that you can become, or I became numb and lived that way is like when God gets swept off the table. So when God is gone, anything else is possible and everything else is possible. And that's how I lived. And I just got pulled into deep and dark lust. There's this notion of blindness and delusion. When I think like God is wrong, I'm right. What else is right that I thought was wrong? I must be God. I become the arbiter of, of, of everyone and everything. And I live that way spiritually. You know, I, I chose a, prof- a profession where I learned how to pick people apart and I learned how to get into their psych, their psyche. And I learned how to just destroy people. And I used that in lust as well. It was all consuming in a way. Um, I also felt that, um, in recovery brings me into wholeness, but lust, it tore me apart, but it's, I started to like reassemble myself in darkness. And I started to blend my, like my, my professional life with lust. I began to blend my personal life with lust. And I was giving out my phone number at work, my email at work. I work for a large organization where this stuff is easily tracked, uh, you know, monitored and tracked. And I was merging everything. And I had no guilt or remorse or shame about that. So the other two steps are this notion of the negative connection. And, you know, where he talks about the person drive. And, um, we, we put all these things in the place of God as a source of our life. He, he mentions the word idolatry. For me, I felt like I became a predator at that point. And I pursued people to, to abuse. I pursued people to take out, like to take them out, like to, to hurt their lives. And, um, it was almost like, you know, before, before you hurt me, I will hurt you. That was kind of the way that I lived spiritually. And the final stage is spiritual death. And, um, I know that, um, it's said in many recovery circles, like, you know, people will say, I wasn't bad at getting good. I wasn't, I feel like I wasn't even sick getting well. I feel like I was dead. I was the walking dead. There was nothing inside of me and I wanted to hurt people. And, um, I needed, I needed a new life. I didn't need part of my old life back. Excuse me. I needed, I needed a new life. I needed a new life restored and I didn't know how to get there. So let me get to what happened. Um, well, I do want to say that incredible gift of desperation and pitiful and comprehensible, uh, demoralization landed on me. So people may relate to this, but every once in a while there would be like a glimmer of the sunlight that would shine through and I would kind of get to see God. Some of it happened when I would be online and like my computer would like freeze or not restart. You know, I, many people had experiences like that. So I heard a story from a woman and she said, um, she went home for her mom's funeral and she said, she just heard it really clear. She was far away from God. And she said, I kind of heard God speak to me or I heard, you know, something internally say like, you are so far away from me and your behaviors have made yourself so deaf to me that I will always be here for me. But after today, you won't hear me. You just won't, you won't be able to hear me because you brought all this on me, on you. And that spoke to me so incredibly, so incredibly clear. Now, granted, I've been in SA. I came into SA right, right before my marriage fell apart. My marriage fell apart, um, in about 2008. I came in 2004. And I didn't want what you all had. I didn't. I was, I was not a good SA member early on. I, um, I sat, I came late. I sat in the back. 
I never wanted to say my sobriety date. I really didn't believe that anybody was sober in the room. And I have a table of my, some of my friends from Atlanta here. And some, I just thought they were lying. I thought you are not sober and you are lying. This is a charade and this just doesn't really exist. And, um, but you know what? In essay, there was something that attracted me and it was this notion of fellowship. This group would go out for fellowship afterwards. And there were, there's these two desires in my heart I always had. I wanted to belong and I wanted to matter. And that fellowship of essay that happened after the meeting was the, um, was a glimmer of belonging and mattering. And I would go just for the, the dinner or the, the coffee afterwards, the, the, the food afterwards. Um, so here's what happened. So I heard that story from that woman. It spoke to me, had a, a, just a spark of momentary clarity. And I said a prayer. I call it my willingness prayer. And I said, and I meant this. I meant everything that this prayer says. And it's pretty simple, but I said, God, do whatever it takes to give me a shot or to give me a chance at you and recovery. And I meant take everything that I was holding up above you. Take my reputation, take my prestige, take my money, take my job, take all these things that I just held up above you. Because I thought I had a, a, a wonderful life ahead of me and I thought I wasn't hurting anyone. And um, I just learned that like my higher power is is the only one who is faithful. He's incredibly faithful. And he brought uh, an implosion and an explosion to my life two weeks to the day later. I remember the last time I acted out, I was in uh, Europe. I was in England. And I came back, and I had a, a pretty severe legal consequence delivered to me at work. And um, I remember I was sort of like merging my life and my work together, and that happened. And that was enough to shake me. So I walk in, I crawl into that Saturday morning meeting in Buckhead a few, um, well, the, the next Saturday. And there was one person I thought, hey, I can ask this guy to be my sponsor. No one raised their hand at the end of the meeting. No one raised their hand. So I'm like, now what do I do? So I go up to the gentleman who introduced me and I say to him, you know, I think I'm ready to try this program and would you consider sponsoring me? And he says, well, let's talk after the fellowship, after we have coffee. So we talk, and he says, I don't raise my hand that much. I let God lead people to me. And there's these incredible words. And I, I didn't know. I said, is this that? Like, is this God who doesn't, who is not for me? Is this that? Is this God showing up for me to, to say that you'll be my sponsor? And, and he says, I'll be your sponsor. And the, the incredible gift of this sponsorship relationship and of this convention, I understand, is this theme of surrender. And my sponsor is big on surrender, actually absolute surrender. You know, you have to go through a period of absolute surrender. And I think that's step one, two, and three. I never got that before. But I love in the Bible when we talk about surrender is the insignia and watchword of our program. Like insignia is the hallmark or like the, the core characteristic of it. And I just did look up watchword and it's like when challenged, it's the password that you give. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the word you give to get through. And, and it has been for me. Like I love surrender. I, I never got it before. I hated it. I fought it, but I actually love surrender now. So I did work the steps with the sponsor and here's how God's fingerprints. I've been, I've been taught to dust for God's fingerprints everywhere I go. So here's how God's fingerprints showed up in, um, in, in some of my step work. I want to tell you about a few God experiences. So step zero, I just told you about, asked this gentleman to be my sponsor, and he said yes. And I, and as I've heard other people share, I was willing to do whatever it take. I mean, I live in Atlanta. 
And it felt like if you told me to just to move to Nashville, because I knew that's where Seiko was, and I figured, well, there must be something good in Nashville, I would just go there. I just didn't know what to do. He never said anything that seemed crazy like that, but I was ready. I was willing to do any and everything it took. So get to step three, and God is not for me. I've established that. And so we're on step three, and I'm like, I am not a theologian. I am not smart enough to come up with a sense of a higher power. And my sponsor guided me. He said, just the smallest nugget, like, who do you need God to be for you? And I needed God to be just someone who wanted the best for me in everything, no matter what. I, I built my recovery on that. And little by little, like now, I'm back to that faith tradition where I, where I was abused. And um, these steps, I'll tell you about step nine, it's, inc- it's, it's just created incredible healing. So I went to therapy also for six years, which I did not talk about. But and it was, I, I love it, right? I love therapy. It, it's, it's great. I recommend it. It's, it's helpful. It could take me so far. It couldn't cross. It couldn't get me to God. It couldn't get me over the divide. And the therapist would often say, go back to your uncle's grave, the abuser's grave, and you could, you know, do some activity there. And in therapy, all I could do was when I just wanted to dig up the grave and get to the person. And in recovery, I did this amends. It took, it was the longest amends. It was the hardest, but it was a year and a half later after I finished the steps. And I did it in my faith tradition, and I sat in a place where my faith tradition, you know, I believe that there's just the presence of God, where God resides. And I wrote this incredible amends letter out, not for my role in the abuse, but for that thing I talked about at the beginning, the attitudinal change. You know, the I, I used the abuse as an excuse to act out and hurt people. I just always used it as an excuse. And I wrote this incredible amends letter to these two individuals, and forgiveness just sort of descended. And I had true forgiveness. And I've had incredible healing from that abuse since then. So the steps taught me that. I also want to quick jump back to step five. When I was doing this with my sponsor, I I read the, you know, what it says about step five in the white book. And there's this great line and it ends with a spiritual awakening was born here for God is here. And when I did my amends with my sponsor, we went to a, a, a mountain cabin. I remember he lit a candle and he said a prayer and he, he ended it with that. He said, for God is here. And that was just another powerful, like, fingerprint of God on my life. Like, I did not know that God could be here. But I love the steps, and I love SA. I'm so passionate about it because it brought me a new life. It brought me back to God, the source of my life, and gives me all these incredible opportunities. So there's also this notion of the wonder of God I want to talk about. I would be remiss to not hit this. We know how in a vision for you it says... Um, if your if your spiritual condition is right, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. That used to mystify me in those six years. I was, you know, the six years of pre-recovery when I was sitting in an SA room thinking people were lying. It, it baffled me. But in recovery, like this has brought incredible clarity to me. And I love this. I love this. Great events will come to pass for you. Here's a few great events. So this whole notion, you know, the SA Fellowship came out with the spirituality of service brochure. It's incredible. It, it really just brings God into service and why it's so important. But there's one part of it that talks about anonymity. And we know that it's the spiritual foundation of our traditions, but it also says that it's the principle where self is subordinated to the good of the whole. And I don't need to be known for anything I do in service. I, I don't need to get recognition for it. And even more so, 
when I do a daily review, there's this whole line about uh, the stream of life. I get to surrender. I get to contribute to the stream of life before because I used to just take from the stream of life. And even in terms of service, I actually get so much, you know, incredible gifting out of walking to the grocery store and you see, you know, some places you go like the cereal boxes are just on the floor or there's a box of something, just putting that box up and getting no recognition for it. Like to me, that's the stream of life. I'm just useful and I'm valuable now because before I used to take and steal and hurt. So here's some other examples of how God showed up in my life. I'm getting close to my time. Um, okay, nothing more incredible when I came alive and I came to know God. It's better when your sponsees come alive. Like, I've had the privilege to watch these men, and we, we joke now, we look back and say, do you remember when you used to fight about this and when you, know, you were doing X, Y, and Z? And, and they say, yes, and they are like, they're like different men today. And, and all I get to do is have the privilege of watching them come alive. And I just need to walk hand in hand with them and share a little bit of what worked for me. Always go to the literature because that changes everything. Um, I want to talk about how God redeems places for me. He just cleans up cities for me. Um, everywhere there's been an essay convention in the past four years that I've gone to, I have acted out in those places. And it was more poignant to me when I went to San Diego for the convention because the convention was held in a hotel that I acted out with. And I get to now go to a convention where I acted out with for recovery, in recovery, and not have to worry about that. Like, that is God changing my life. Um, a lot of folks may know about Joe and Charlie, and they talk about this notion of who gets two lives in this world. Like we lived a full, I lived a full life as a sexaholic. Most people, some people die that way. And I get another opportunity of a full life as a recovering sexaholic. And that is incredible. And that is only because of God and what he's done for me. All right. I'm going to jump forward to there's, there's, there's a lot of other smaller issues like these, you know, so selfish, right? Sex and self, God and others. Took my dad to Gettysburg for her 70th birthday, and I wanted to leave because it was a long day. My mom, we wanted to go eat, and I heard this voice, just stay, just stay. And we stayed for this evening, this program, and um, there was, um, I'm just clearing my my, my time here. There was a, a boy who wrote a letter to my dad, who's a vet, and he gave my dad this letter thanking him for his service and protecting his rights to freedom. And my dad just wept when that kid gave him that letter. I've never seen my dad weep like that. My dad's a big member of some fraternal organizations. He took that letter back to those people and he shared it. And we would have missed that if I would have been you know, focused on sex and self and wanting to go eat. So these are just these incredible opportunities. Okay, so today's Jan or July 14th. Six days from today would be July 20th, and that's the sixth anniversary of, of sixth anniversary of a, of a day when I found myself in an operating room. And I kept thinking, like, is he here? Is he here? And I didn't mean God, but the gentleman that introduced me, they wheeled him into this operating room. And by the marvel of modern medicine and the act of the hand of God, they took my kidney from me, transferred it in midair, cleaned it up, and put it in my sponsor. I went through this incredible journey. (laughs) 
I went through this incredible journey of I was a perfect six antigen match for my sponsor. Like his own his own previous uh, donor was disqualified at the last minute, and they just called me up and they say, "Would you complete the testing?" And about six months later, or earlier, I prayed to God and I said, "What should I do about this?" He has plenty of family. Sex and self would tell me like I might get married again. I might have kids. I'm I'm probably need my kidney for me. And God, <laughs> telling you. And God just said, do the next right thing. And I didn't even know if I was HIV positive at the time. I didn't know what I was. And I just went for the next test. I didn't know my blood type. They found out my blood type. I didn't have any diseases. There was a moment when I was in the hospital, or in, in the transplant clinic getting tested. And the head of the transplant clinic came in and my sponsor was in the hospital. I said, yeah, come on up. And, um, the doctor was like, this is strange, but a man your age, you were married, etc. You should have had some form of HPV or just something. And he said, you don't have any sexually transmitted disease or even like you're not a carrier. You have nothing. And I just felt this clarity like God preserved me in the darkest depths of my acting out to get me to this moment to give my kidney to this, to my sponsor. So it was incredible because it, I mean, thank you, but God, God is incredible. It changed. I mean, it, I knew I was doing something helpful. Like, and I've seen my sponsor sponsor other guys. Like, that is incredible because, like, he is carrying out God's handiwork. Um, it changed me, though. It changed me deeply, profoundly. Um, there were so many other miracles associated with that whole scenario and how it happened and how I was able to just walk through it. It was incredible. Um, I do want to say. I have come to identify myself as a worshiper. You know, you, you kind of know in your heart, I worshiped lust. I know I did, and I became what I thought I was. But now I'm a worshiper of God, and I was at this worship event in, well into recovery. And I felt God asking me to do a little bit more, um, just increase your giving, be more selfless. So there's this notion of you can sponsor children in other countries, and, you know, and I, and I already, I already did this, and, um, they were walking up the aisle, and I thought, no, I, I can't afford it. I don't want to do it. And I just kept feeling like, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. So they get, them, they get to my aisle, and I raise my hand, and they pass this packet down. I've already sponsored a little girl. I thought, maybe I'll get a boy. So I get a little girl again, God's plan, and I see your name in the country and everything, and I turn it over. You don't remember this, but my sobriety day is September 28th, 2010. This child's, this precious soul's birthday is September 28th, 2010. Like these moments are like unforgettable. They are clear messages to me that God is for me. God is for the sexaholic. Like he's really for me. I would be remiss to say, and my time is short, that um, another game changer for me, because this focus on surrender is this notion of surrender and accountability circles, and I am in an active circle. This has been an, an, an incredibly uh, propel, propel, propelling uh, momentum for my recovery. And Roy talks about this notion of surrendering lust, and, and I understand that now, and surrendering my character defects, and I'm getting, I'm getting that now. But there's two more levels he talks about. He talks about surrendering sexuality. And I think, I looked at my sexuality for 40 years through the eyes of lust. I don't know what my sexuality is. I need God to reveal to me my sexuality, because I no longer am what I did. 
And then finally, the lower level is identity. And so my prayer and my, my, my sort of where I go today and my pursuing God is like, I am who he says I am. I'm not who I say I am. And he's, he's, he's showing me different things about my life. He's showing me I'm a morning person. I'm not a night owl. He's just showing me things that I didn't, I didn't know. And when I tell him who I am, it always goes south. It just always goes bad. But when I receive who I am from him, God's plan A is better than my plan A. I will wrap it up with this. Um, I'm Rich P. I'm a liar, a manipulator, a cheater, an abuser, and a thief. But not today. Thanks to God, my sponsor, the Fellowship of SA, and every one of you in this room. Thank you for letting me share. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.